scripture passage I want to call our attention to is that which we looked at uh, last Sunday, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And I'll be reading this from the English Standard Version translation. Remember something of the context here. This is Paul uh, writing to his uh, dear child in the faith. Uh, the young Timothy uh, had become a believer, uh, most possibly through uh, Paul's own uh, witness and testimony to him. Uh, he traveled then with the Apostle Paul throughout really the remainder of his life, though at particular times uh, the Apostle Paul had Timothy to be resident in a particular area to minister. Such is the case here. Uh, Timothy is at the church of Ephesus. He's essentially the lead pastor among the rest of the uh, pastors and elders of the church. His responsibility is to uh, teach the church, uh, charge the church, uh, encourage the church in every way toward gospel truth and gospel love. Uh, we ought to remember as well that uh, this particular epistle to Timothy uh, was given for the whole church, not just for Timothy. It's not some secret knowledge which elders possess, but which the rest of the people don't possess. It's for everyone. You'll see how important that is when we get to chapter 3, where instructions concerning elders and deacons are specifically given. The point is, is that whatever we read that Paul says to Timothy was for the church. Whatever we read that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in the letter at the Ephesians, was that which Paul had communicated as well to Timothy. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's over all and in all, through all. We have one doctrine, one teaching. The ultimate goal of which, verse 5 says, is love. From a pure heart, a sincere conscience, and a genuine faith. So, reading these words to you, then we'll pray, and we'll pick up from where we were last week. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, we recognize, as Paul wrote to Timothy, all scriptures breathed out by you. And therefore, it is profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that not only the man of God but the people of God may be fully and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we come to the scripture this morning trusting that what you have always done for your saints through the teaching and preaching of the word you will do again with us by virtue of your Holy Spirit so that our attention to your word and the exposition of the word will build us up in our most holy faith 
that we may live lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called, that we may give all glory to the triune God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, you're familiar with John Bunyan. His most famous work is Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory uh, of a Christian moving from uh, death to life and finding that life at the foot of the cross and then progressing in that life. Uh, lesser known, but also an allegorical work of John Bunyan is The Holy War. Let me read the title of The Holy War. Uh, it has a subtitle. The Holy War, subtitle. Made by Shaddai, which is the Hebrew for Almighty, God Almighty, upon Diabolus, or Diabolus, which is a Latinized form of the devil, for the regaining of the metropolis of the world, the metropolis of the world would be the city of man, or the losing and taking again of the town of Mansoul. Man's soul being any particular person's soul and the taking of that soul. Now, as an allegory, it presents the story of the Bible in terms of war. A war that began in heaven, which descended to the earth. Uh, the war that is about the rebellion of the great dragon, the serpent, the devil, who on earth took the human race captive those who were created to bear God's image, taking them as prisoners of war. And therefore then, in terms of the life of the Savior coming, a recognition that all of the Christian life bears this theme of Christian warfare, a holy war. Now, when we looked at this particular passage in 1 Timothy last week, uh, we saw that the key idea was, in fact, the charge to Timothy to wage the good warfare. Last week we focused principally upon the recognition that this characterization of the Christian life is constant throughout the New Testament. We even find it in the Old Testament in the way in which God himself is described and revealed as the man of war. So the concept of warfare, the concept of the Christian life, essentially go hand in hand. We have to recognize this war. And last week, we recognized it in terms of Scripture, in terms of the New Testament, and in terms of what Paul says to Timothy, in terms of Timothy's specific calling and specific equipping, uh, which reflect every believer's calling and every believer's equipping, which is unto and for the sake of waging this good warfare. This morning we're going to look at not only must we recognize this war, but we must see how we must be fully engaged in this war. So let me begin by once again defining the biblical war that is in fact the Christian life or encompasses the Christian life. So based upon the calling and equipping that we find in Scripture, first, this war is a spiritual war. In fact, it is entirely spiritual in terms of its nature. 
It's a conflict that's waged against the presence of sin in the soul and sin in the church body and sin in the human population of the world. A conflict that is fueled constantly by the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, those who are disobedient to God's truth, who's described in the New Testament even as the God of this world, who exerts power over the whole world of unbelievers, blinding unbelievers to the truth of God's glory that's manifested in the face of Christ. We must recognize the Christian life this way. There is no other option. Which leads to the main point of our message today. We must go to war in this good war. We must go to war in this good war. And we can break this down into three component reasons that we can find either explicitly or implicitly in this text. So here are the three reasons why we must go and war in this war. First, it's commanded. It is commanded that we do so. Secondly, it's necessary. On a personal level, it is necessary that we do so. Thirdly, it is needed. At the level of the church body, it is needed that we would do so. It's commanded. It's necessary. It's a great need. So to begin with the idea of this being commanded, commanded that we do so, commanded that we engage, we first see this in Timothy, Paul to Timothy. Paul charges Timothy to wage this war, verse 18. Now the word charge there was used back in verse 3 and back in verse 5. So let me explain what this word charge means. If you look at other translations, it might say something like this in verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love. The word charge can be translated as to teach or to instruct. But the reason why some translators insist that it has to be like the word charge or mandate or even command is this. Some kinds of teaching really are informational only. Useful information. But they bear no specific moral implication. For instance, um, as a dad, you may have given your son, maybe your daughter, but your son, Tonka toys, Tonka trucks. And so you explain to him, this Tonka truck is a dump truck. This one is a backhoe. This one is a bulldozer. Uh, you were instructing him, giving him information about the toys that you were letting him, that you were giving him to play. Now, I'm sure that if you were a good dad, you went further than that with respect to these Tonka toys. Because the next level of instruction that you needed to give was to teach your child how to share his toys with his siblings or with his friends. Now, teaching a child to share is informational and moral. 
And the truth is, you know your child hasn't learned the meaning of sharing if he refuses to share his Tonka toys with his siblings or his friends. There is this meaning in the word that we find here when Paul charges Timothy. It is information that carries with it a moral content. And the only way that Timothy has learned what Paul has said is if what he hears, he obeys. The gospel is the same kind of concept. You have not learned or understood the gospel until you have placed your faith and trust in Christ. You have not understood what it means to confess Jesus Christ is Lord unless you have submitted to him your obedience. There's informational kinds of teaching and there is this teaching that includes the moral imperative to act upon, to follow up, to believe and live the things that you know. And that is what Paul is saying to Timothy about this warfare. I charge you to wage this war. Now, it's not just for Timothy. It really is for all of us as Christians. All of us stand under this requirement to engage in this warfare. We're under a command. We really have no other choice. Back in the 60s, um, the young men in my high school, teenagers, so that would include during the 60s, at the tail end of it, Mike, we were three years be he was three years behind me. But we all understood that this was a period of time, Vietnam War conflict. We understood the relationship between being given information about a war and a duty and responsibility to a war because of those things called the selective service, called the draft. Uh, all the boys in my high school, all the young teenage men across America in the 60s understood this, that when they turned 18... They had previously already, uh, by the force of federal law, submitted their names to the selective service. And when they turned 18 and had finished high school, they were liable for the draft. The draft, a military order to secure military service for the sake and purpose of engaging in war. Federal law, part of our citizenship responsibilities. We all had to register. Um, and there was a likelihood that if your number was low, you would, in fact, wind up under the mandate to engage in combat in Southeast Asia. Pretty powerful time in the lives of many of us understanding the relationship between information and then information that carries with it a moral imperative. 
Um, now, you couldn't ignore it. You could run from it. That is, you could flee to Canada and dodge the draft and be subject to pre federal prosecution. Um, you could try to become a conscience objector. That is, you could file a case with the draft board that you were really a pacifist. Probably wouldn't have worked in my case. I was in, I was in too many fights as a kid. You could delay service legally. That is, you could get a 2S student deferment, which was a promise and obligation that you would, in fact, enlist or be drafted following college. You could be medically disqualified. But you could not ignore it. Similar fashion, Christians. You can't ignore the holy war and the fight that you're called to. There's no spiritual Canada that you can flee to. There's no way to file a petition with heaven to claim that you're a pacifist. You can't get any kind of medical or even psychological disqualification from this war. Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon both were afflicted with very deep and dark seasons of depression. Nevertheless, God used these men and their ministries in an incredible, incredible way, even because of their afflictions. Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer, blinded at six weeks of age. She wrote over 9,000 hymns. During her time, she wrote many of them under a pen name because she didn't think it was godly for every hymn in the hymnal to have her name attached to it. So she had dozens and dozens of pen names under which her hymns would be published. She had given her life to Jesus as a young child, blind, but motivated to memorize Scripture, even as a young child. Her program was five chapters a week. As a young child, she could recite Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all 31 chapters of Proverbs, all of the chapters of the Song of Solomon, and many, many psalms, whole chapters, verses, as a child before she reached adulthood. Equipping herself in order to engage in the best way she could possibly engage in this war fully equipped of Scripture so that her poetry would be saturated with the words and themes of God's Word to the edification, to the building up of God's people as they would worship and praise and sing of Jesus. The point is, there are no medical or psychological disqualifications as a Christian. Also, there's no student deferments. If you are a Christian, you are in the school of Christ. And every student in the school of Christ 
is also a soldier of the cross. Now, that's our calling. This is the command we are under. And obedience is the proof that we understand what Christ has charged us with. We must engage in this war. Then secondly, besides the fact that we're commanded, we need to see how it's necessary to do so, necessary to engage in this war, and to see it on a very personal level. Uh, Drawing upon what Paul has taught the Ephesians, and therefore likewise unto Timothy, we can think about the realities of the whole Christian life. We can think about all of the dimensions of the Christian life with respect to our enemies. And the enemies have been wonderfully summarized this way throughout Christian history. The enemies of the Christian life are the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. But here's what we need to understand at the personal level. The enemies of your Christian life do not recognize any non-combatant status. That is to say, your enemies do not recognize any Christian who claims, uh, I'm, I'm not a combatant, I'm not a soldier, I'm not... They don't recognize that. You may want to avoid the conflict that your life is going to have with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But there is no peace to be purchased with respect to the enemies of your faith. Neville Chamberlain. Do you know the name in history? The British Prime Minister between 1937 and 1940, uh, in the very era that Hitler was uh, taking Germany into its second European war of the 20th century. Chamberlain did not want England to be engaged in this European war. Many English people felt the same way. And perhaps most felt the same way. What Chamberlain did is he went to Europe and met with Hitler. September 1938. He went with the idea that he could make a negotiated agreement with Hitler that would keep England out of this war. What he performed was an act of appeasement. The Munich Agreement... England granted recognition that Hitler and Germany were going to take a portion of Czechoslovakia, militarily take a portion of Czechoslovakia, with the understanding that this would free England from having to become engaged in what Germany was doing. He thought Hitler would keep this agreement. He returned to England and promised his country peace in our times. Hitler had no intention to keep that agreement. History has regarded this judgment on Neville Chamberlain, that he was deluded, 
to think that Hitler could be appeased. It was a delusion on Chamberlain's part. The next year, 1939, England found it absolutely necessary to go to war against Germany for its own sake as a country. Chamberlain became historically infamous for his policy of appeasement. Here's the point. The enemies of Christ do not recognize a non-combatant status. Therefore, you and I can't be Neville Chamberlain believers. We must not delude ourselves into thinking that we don't have to fight in this holy war. The world, the flesh, and the devil cannot be appeased. If we don't engage in this war, the war will come nevertheless and it will overtake us and it will overcome us. That's why the New Testament teaching is comprehensively geared toward telling believers you must give every effort to run this race and to fight this fight, although never, ever, ever presuming upon your own strength to do so. It says this with respect to the devil. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, but resist him standing firm in your faith. We don't resist by appeasement. We resist by standing firm in the faith, standing firm against the schemes of the devil because we have put on the full armor of God. We're likewise warned about the flesh. The flesh is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about the presence in us of indwelling sin. Romans 7.21, Paul says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul is speaking about the nature of indwelling sin. This evil refers to the flesh, our enemy. It's present. It's always close at hand. It's particularly close at hand at every moment that we seek to do what's right and good. This is why Paul goes on in verses 22 and 23 to describe this principle of indwelling sin as waging war against the believer. He says that even though, Paul says, even though he delights in the law of God in his inner man, in his heart of hearts, he delights in the grace of God, the knowledge of God, the truths of God, the principle of indwelling sin, the flesh itself, is waging war against his thinking, against his mind, against his ardent desires toward God. Everything you desire to do to honor Christ is opposed inside of you by the flesh. And that is why Paul says, that is why we so often do not do what we want to do. And that is why Paul cries out at the end of Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Because it's only Christ who can give you the victory. 
indwelling sin is always here to make war on us. We can't run to some kind of spiritual candidate. We can't get any kind of a deferment. We will not get a medical discharge. There are no options except to fight this war. And the only way we can fight is by the Lord's weapons, by his full armor, by resting and trusting in Christ while we strive to run the race that is set before us. Then the world. The world wars against the Christian. Its power, the power of the world, is to hold us in a kind of love. John speaks about this, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but from the world. That's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. And he's speaking of the worldly affairs of this life. In order that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. So in order to handle the world, we must keep ourselves from getting entangled in the love of the world. We must fight against the world's power to take us captive, to make us prisoners. Now, the point is this. To deny or to reject the soldier status as a Christian is somehow to deny or reject the idea that there is a war. But it's also to deny or reject that Christ is your captain. We must fight the good fight of the faith. Then lastly... We have to wage this warfare. We have to engage in this holy war because the entire body of Christ needs us engaged in this war. Now, the, the theme of warfare isn't the only metaphorical, though there's such reality to a spiritual war that it's it's probably not even right to call it a metaphor, but the description of the Christian life as warfare falls within the, the comprehensive teaching of the Apostle Paul uh, to the Ephesians on what the life of the church together is like and our responsibilities, as it were, to one another. So in chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning at verse 11, then through 16, Paul sets forth the proper working of the body in these words. He says concerning Christ that Christ gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up and love. Now catch these important points. The saints are equipped by those that God has called to equip the church so that the body of Christ may be built up a body that is actually held together by that which every particular member of the body supplies. Each member of the body doing its part. The body of Christ is fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. Now take that metaphor and apply it then to the holy war that we are engaged in. And here's what it means. The church needs everyone to fight. This is the great need of the church. That every believer would be a soldier, soldiering his part in this holy war. If we're not fighting, we're giving ground to the enemy. If we're not fighting, we're weakening the life of the church. The body of Christ needs everyone soldiering his part in this holy war to the protection and to the advance of the church of God. Now you may be thinking, I have no choice but I don't have any good idea as to how I participate for the sake of the body of Christ in this war. You may be thinking, I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. Let's go to the end of the passage about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Because Paul specifically makes clear what every believer as a soldier must do for the sake of the body. In chapter 6, verse 18, Paul writes these words to all the believers in Ephesus and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the saints. And then Paul goes on to say, and pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Here is what you can do. Here is what you need to do. For the sake of the church, what you must do. Pray for the church. Pray for the saints that you know. 
Pray for those who lead and serve the saints that you know. Pray even the words that we sing to close our service today. O church, arise and put your armor on and hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold, whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. We're commanded to engage in this war. We must do so because the world, the flesh, and the devil will always be bringing this war against us. We must engage in this war because our church family needs us to do our part, especially that we would pray. God help us. Amen. Oh Lord, this is our prayer. Help us to obey the captain in this battle of our faith. Remind us to stand up, stand up for Jesus, to be soldiers of the cross. In his name, amen.